0: welcome to LawCast episode 30. And today, my colleague, Tim Green, and I are going to be discussing mediation and arbitration. Now, we know there are hundreds of pensions litigation cases out there, but very few of those cases ever get to trial. And the reason for that is that they're settled. They're settled privately, uh, often at or shortly after mediation or arbitration. So it's important that you're familiar with both processes and that you manage and you you learn how to mediate and arbitrate effectively. And that's what we're gonna be looking at. Now, why should you mediate or arbitrate? Well, firstly, there's a very good reason that, that the courts will, will provide us cost sanction against you if you don't. So that's that's a good reason. But there's a better reason and that it's invariably in your client's best interest to do so. If you're in a court case, especially a high-value case, there's a temptation for the litigation to trundle on at quite a leisurely pace. It can go on for years. And before you know it, both parties have racked up millions um, in costs. Now, the problem with this often is that the key decision makers, the key principles involved in the case, don't actually focus on the matter until shortly before trial. It's only shortly before trial that they face up to the risks involved and the potential cost penalties. And of course, by this stage, the costs uh, are exceptionally high. Now, the advantage of mediation is it brings these key decision makers to the party early. They have to focus on, on the case at a very early stage. So I'm going to look at mediation first. Now, mediation is a consensual process. The mediator has no power to make finding awards. That's first and foremost, that's the difference between mediation and arbitration. Now when do you mediate? Well traditionally mediation has taken place quite late in the litigation process, so after formal proceedings have been served and after formal disclosure evidence has taken place. But now it's much more common for it to take place at a much earlier stage. And of course the professional negligence pre-action protocol which encourages a cards-on-the-table approach, so key evidence is used very early and claims and defences are set out in detail at a very early stage, facilitate this. So I'd say it's now more common mediation to take place actually during the protocol process rather uh, than fully uh, claim, the claim being formalised. It's important to remember that mediation isn't a one-off opportunity. You can mediate a number of times. You can mediate during the protocol. If that fails, you can then mediate uh, after disclosure and closer to trial. And it's quite common in high value cases for there to be more than one uh, mediation. So how the process works? Well, either party can suggest mediation. It's usually the claimants who suggest it. And that's because I think there's a feeling that once you've got a party around a table to mediate, there's going to be an offer of some sort on the table. So it's quite attractive uh, for claimants in that respect. You agree on a date for mediation. Now it's important in this respect that you give yourself enough time to prepare properly. And in that respect, uh, you're gonna need at least a few weeks because you have to draft a position statement. You will have to determine the strategy you're going to adopt. And also if you're on the defendant side, you'll invariably need to get authorization any settlement offers that are going to be made. You will then agree upon a venue. Uh, In my experience, it's always better to host mediations if you can. It's always better to be on familiar territory and make yourself as comfortable as possible because mediations tend to drag on quite a long time. They usually run uh, for most of the day and often long into the night. So you want to be as comfortable as you possibly can. In terms of the process, Each side will um, exchange what's known as a position statement shortly before mediation, typically a week before the mediation, and this will set out their position. And often it will make uh, a number of concessions. It's subject to mediation privilege, so this document can't be used as evidence against you uh, if the mediation fails. And I think in a position statement, uh, to be as effective as possible, it needs to be credible. I think where there are weaknesses in your position, you should acknowledge those. That tends to curry favour with the mediator and get them onto the right footing. I was involved in a case just a few weeks ago where the other side uh, put forward a position statement which didn't acknowledge any weaknesses at all or any litigation risk at all in their position. And frankly, it simply wasn't credible. And it's important that you do maintain that credibility course you have to agree on who the mediator is going to be. In pensions cases it's absolutely vital that you have someone with pensions expertise as well as litigation experience because you do not want to waste time having to explain uh, complex uh, pension concepts or pensions jargon. So there are plenty of experienced uh, pensions people out there who are accredited mediators. Uh, Most of them are lawyers, particularly barristers, but there are a few actors as well who are very effective mediators. So it's very important that uh, you uh, pick the right person. And it's usually a straightforward process to agree with the other side who, who the mediator is going to be. It's absolutely vital as part of this process that you get the right people in the room at the mediation. And again, this means the key decision makers. If you don't get the people of requisite seniority at the mediation, then it's very likely that that mediation uh, will fail. Now, it's important to realise, once you've got these, these key decision makers in the room, as part of the, the position statement, you have to set out, not just the costs you've incurred to date in the case, but also an estimate of costs that are going to be incurred all the way up to include and including trial. Now that tends to focus people's minds on, uh, on on a settlement or on the uh, advantages of an early settlement in the case. Now, it's fair to say that not all mediations will be successful in terms of a settlement. In fact, from my experience, I would say that in terms of, of cases that have settled on the day during mediation, I would say probably in my experience about 30 to 40 percent. But Quite a few cases settle very uh, soon following mediation. In my experience, probably 60 70% will settle in the weeks following mediation. And if you go to the accredited mediation uh, firms, they will have stats saying that 80% of the cases that we provide mediators for settle. I always take those with a bit of a pinch of salt because they include cases that settle up to two months after the mediation takes place. But... A surprising, given given that it's a consensual process, it's surprising how many do settle. And again, if you have a skillful mediator, it's exceptionally helpful in terms of narrowing the issues down. So even if you don't reach a position where you are uh, ready to settle, the issues will be narrowed. So there is scope for uh, a settlement at a later date and even if you don't settle or settle shortly after it's rarely a wasted process because what you get out of mediation is scrutiny of your position whether it's a claim or a defence by an impartial uh, but expert sophisticated third party so it's helpful in terms of getting tips from the mediator as to how to improve your claim or defences perhaps that you haven't considered so It not only facilitates a better understanding of your opponent's claim, but it often facilitates a better understanding of your own claim as well, and how you should plug gaps in the claim or the defence. Now, in terms of the day itself, what the mediator will tend to do is to get all the parties together in the room at the start of the day. Uh, each side will then put it, uh, will make a statement. Usually, the claimant will start and then the defendant will respond with a summary of their own position. The parties will then break away, go to their own rooms, and the mediator will shuttle between the two rooms and see if he can narrow the issues in the case and see if there are, is there a potential scope for settlement. This process will continue throughout the day and invariably. The mediator will, will, will say to the side, Look, you know, I need a bottom line of what you're willing to accept or what you're willing to pay in the case. And if those numbers are close enough, then the mediation will proceed. If they're too far apart, then things may fall down at that process. But in terms of the success rate, it, it is surprising, given it's a consensual process, how many are successful. And it's important that you prepare properly for the mediation and you select the correct mediator to give yourself the maximum chance of success in the process. I'm now gonna hand over to my colleague, Tim Green. He's gonna go through the arbitration process.
1: Thanks, Neil. So I'm going to talk to you about arbitration. What is arbitration? Like mediation, it's another form of alternative dispute resolution. So that you don't necessarily need to go through a court process. Unlike court litigation, arbitration is based on a contractual agreement between the disputing parties to submit to the arbitration process to resolve the dispute. The agreement could take the form of a lengthy arbitration agreement, or as is often the case in pension schemes, if there is an arbitration uh, clause, it's a short clause which is typically set out in the governing provisions of the scheme. Now, arbitration clause might simply uh, confirm that there is a power to submit to arbitration. It might also go further and allow the disputing parties to agree who will be the arbitrator and in the absence of agreement, how an arbitrator will be selected, which is typically by referral to an independent person, such as the president of the Law Society for England and Wales. Now. Whilst the parties of the scheme's governing provisions have, by the arbitration clause, effectively submitted to arbitration instead of litigation to resolve disputes, it is possible that a court process might still be required before the arbitration uh, gets going. For example, this might be to determine whether a party is subject to the arbitration clause, to determine what seat or jurisdiction the arbitration is submitted to, and to resolve who who should be appointed as the arbitrator if the clause is silent on the selection process. The rules applying to to the arbitration process may be predetermined in the arbitration clause, or if silent, may be agreed between the parties and the selected arbitrator. There are lots of different institutional rules that might be adopted, and so there may need to be advice surrounding which are the best to resolve the particular type of dispute. There may also be implications if submitting to a particular institution's rules, including the costs of administering the process and the expenses associated with that that process. For example, if a venue is required to um, host the hearing. In my experience of pensions arbitral proceedings, the arbitrator will rely on the Arbitration Act 1996 to determine the rules of the process, if the arbitration clause is silent on them. That said, the law of the seat of the arbitration will determine the rules to be followed subject to the terms of the arbitration clause. If the arbitration clause specifies an international law for the arbitration, advice should be obtained from someone qualified in that jurisdiction. It's also possible for the arbitration clause to have different seats and laws applying For example, the seat could be France, so the rules in France will apply, but English law could apply. Now, again, in my experience, for UK pensions uh, disputes that go to arbitration, the seat will be either England, Scotland, Wales or Northern Northern Ireland, and the corresponding law of those different jurisdictions will apply. But that's not necessarily a, a fundamental requirement. So why do parties go for arbitration instead of litigation or mediation? Well, privacy and confidentiality can be a key reason. The parties to arbitration are subject to confidentiality, whereas the court process is a public process. Also, arbitration hearings will be in private rather than a public forum, and no precedent will be set. There can be many reasons why pension trustees or sponsors stakeholders in relation to pension arrangements might not wish for public resolution of a dispute. It could be commercial matters, it could be employer relation issues, and, and it could just simply be to avoid unwelcome publicity. There's normally some control over the choice of the arbitrator too, which means that the parties can ensure that an independent person with the necessary expertise to resolve the dispute will be appointed. Also, if there is a time pressure on resolving the dispute, the disputing parties can request the availability of the arbitrator to ensure there is prospect of resolution by the necessary deadline, which leads me on to the flexibility of the arbitration process. Parties can agree the process to be taken. For example, it could be agreed that the arbitrator will decide the dispute based on paper alone rather than having a hearing. That approach uh, is often taken where there's a, a simple dispute and the parties can state the cases, much like a mediation through a position statement. However, when there is complexity in the dispute, then often that warrants a hearing. And also there can be complexity if the parties want more than one arbitrator and there's an international seat. That can lead to uh, hearings overseas And you need to ensure that the processes accommodate everyone's availability for that hearing. The parties can also agree the process for submitting evidence to the arbitrator, including the formalities attached to submitting the evidence. This can make arbitration a more simple process than uh, the, 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 the typical litigation witness statement with exhibited evidence. My experience is that evidence is often submitted in a less formal manner than through a court process. The parties will often state their case, and should the arbitrator have any queries, they can request further evidence on a particular point. The lack of formality, though, can give rise to disputes over what might be properly disclosable or not as part of the process, and this can lead to delays in resolving the dispute, whereas there's greater certainty in, in, in the litigation process through the courts. As I mentioned, timeframes can be important. Selection of an arbitrator with availability to resolve a dispute before a pressing deadline and developing a process to work to that deadline can promote a a speedy resolution to the dispute. However, there is still a risk that arbitration will take longer than the court timeframes. This is because you might need several arbitrators. um, There could be an international angle to, to the dispute. And so there are limiting factors in, in in making all the necessary arrangements to resolve the dispute through arbitration. My experience of simpler disputes that are heard on paper is that they can be resolved quickly. Costs is is another feature of arbitration. There's generally a perception that costs will not be as great as litigation. Now, I think that is generally the case in circumstances where there is a simple dispute that an arbitrator can resolve. However, there are many factors that will decide whether the costs are likely to be higher or lower than a a litigation process, and parties to a dispute will need to go through that cost-benefit analysis and deciding whether arbitration is the right process for them. Some of those costs will be whether there's an institutional fees that are applying to the process, whether they charge administration fees for the process, whether accommodation needs to be uh, booked so that the hearing can be held, how long the hearing is likely to be and where the seat is for the arbitration. Also, with arbitration, it's not strictly necessary to have lawyers involved, so there can be a cost saving there. But in practice, for pensions disputes, they're complex. It's a complex area of the law. And typically, pensions lawyers will be instructed as part of the process. Parties to arbitration are often attracted to the process by the fact that a decision and any award, which is the equivalent to a judgment in litigation, is final and binding with limited uh, opportunity to uh, appeal, unlike the court process where there are definite routes of appeal. The arbitrator may make a full or a partial award, the latter being where only some of the issues of the dispute are resolved. Parties may still agree a settlement which can form part of any award that is given. Directions or orders on procedural matters are not considered to be awards and are not subject to appeal. Also, where provided for in the arbitration uh, agreement, it is possible for the arbitrator to make provisional awards, which are not final and binding, until the final award is granted. And that gives the parties an opportunity to pass any further comments on that provisional award before the final award is is granted. As I mentioned, there are limited routes to challenge an award under the arbitration Act 1996 in the UK and the party must apply within 28 days of the award. Some some examples of the grounds are, if the award is incomplete and has not addressed the issue in dispute, an application can be made to the arbitrator to revisit the decision. And if that's not addressed, if if, if the dispute is still not addressed, an application can be made to court to set aside uh, the award on on a basis of a serious irregularity. Other grounds are if there's been a clerical mistake or there's ambiguity, the arbitrator can be asked to correct the position. Also, if the arbitrator lacks substantive jurisdiction to decide uh, the dispute, uh, that can be a route to appeal. Now, In my experience of pensions matters, those substantive jurisdiction disputes happen earlier in the process before the award is given, but that's not to say that they still can't happen after the award has been made. Another ground is where there's been a serious irregularity. This can involve things like a breach of the arbitrator's duty to act fairly and impartially, The arbitrator exceeding the powers that are set in the arbitration agreement, a procedural error. So, for example, if someone was invited to submit further evidence, but that communication never actually got to the party involved. If there's been a failure to deal with the issues under dispute, or if there's uncertainty or ambiguity in uh, the award that's been granted. Also, if the award has been obtained by fraud, all of these issues can constitute a serious irregularity that can be challenged. When parties want to enforce um, an agreement, they may seek permission from the court to enforce an award. Same powers for enforcing court judgment will then be available for the enforcing party. The defendant can seek a stay of of any enforcement process whilst whilst any challenge has been made at the seat of the arbitration. Effectively, the enforcement proceedings uh, will be stayed until that, that dispute At the seat of the arbitration is resolved. So in conclusion, there are potentially attractive features in the arbitration process. However, the final and binding nature of any awards might prompt parties to explore other forms of alternative dispute resolution first, such as mediation, in order to try and settle matters and preserve relationships, if there's an ongoing relationship. However, if the settlement cannot be reached Uh, in in those uh, alternative forms of dispute resolution and ongoing relationships are not important to the parties. A key factor uh, for going down the arbitration route rather than litigation is that final and binding award process and the fact that the dispute and the nature of it will be kept confidential. I'll now pass back to Neil for any closing
0: thoughts. Thanks, Tim. So there you have it, mediation and arbitration, two uh, very different but vital tools for the resolution of disputes. And anyone involved in contentious pensions matters needs to be very familiar with those processes. And frankly, it's far more likely you're going to be involved in a mediation or arbitration than you're going to go to a full court hearing. One final point I would like to make about both processes is that during lockdown, Uh, both mediation and arbitration and court hearings have been carried out virtually uh, rather than in person. And in my experience, court hearings tended to work pretty effectively virtually, tended to be relatively unaffected, whereas my experience of mediation and arbitration was that the virtual virtual, uh, hearings didn't work uh, particularly effectively, especially mediation. I think mediation, you really need to get into the same room and see the whites of your opponent's eyes in order for that to be effective. So hopefully now we've uh, come out of lockdown and life's getting back to normal, mediations will become just as effective as they were pre-lockdown. That's it from us today. Thanks very much for your time. And we'll see you again shortly for Pensions Lawcast episode 31.